You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook.
that offering in fear of being rude. <laughs> Some of the worst pain I've experienced. I love this. I told this one to Jay, and he just died by it. This person said, I erased people's names from my phone so that when they call, all I see is an unknown number, and since it's an unknown number, I don't have to answer it. <laughs> um, I'm sure some of us have done this with all the hiking around. I've scaled wet, steep, and slippery rocks when hiking just to avoid small talk with the people on the actual path. <laughs> I've been driving a mile to other gas stations for a year now to avoid going to the 7-Eleven three minutes away from my house walking distance because I don't want to make small talk with the cashier who works there. This person said, I made a fake Facebook page of one of my family members, updated a post that stated someone in our family was seriously injured in an accident, and sent it to someone that was asking me to hang out with them. I told him I was very upset and needed some time to myself. Okay, too much. Sometimes I'm walking around where there are a lot of people, I'll put the phone to my ear and make believe I'm having a full conversation with someone. I have actually done this. <laughs> uh, and someone commented, once I was doing that and someone actually called me, it was really awkward. <laughs> okay, here's the last one. This is the best one. When I was in my early teens, I was just hanging out with my family in the garden is this nice sunny day. The doorbell rang and my parents went inside to go answer it. From where you could hear faintly the voices of people at the door. I didn't recognize the voices, so I went and stood in the shed in the back of the garden out of view. <laughs> the people at the door who I hadn't met before were friends of my parents. Anyway, they all came into the garden and sat down chatting. Meanwhile, I'm still standing in the shed just waiting for them to leave. I considered coming out of the shed, but the longer I stood there, the more I realized how strange it would be if I just appeared randomly from the shed. So I just waited for them to leave. This was before smartphones could have easily killed time, so instead I just stared at the walls and grabbed the back of paint cans. I think they were there for about an hour and a half, and I didn't leave the shed until we were there. We live in a world where we are desperate to avoid conflict, constantly. We will take on different identities, we will uh, stand in sheds for hours, we will do whatever it takes to avoid any semblance of conflict in our lives. We'll avoid that drop in your stomach, like when you were young and got called to the principal's office, unless you never got called. The problem is that conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen. There is no escaping it. Because we live in a post-fall, post-Genesis 3, if you know the story, reality. We live in a reality of broken relationship with God, broken relationships with each other, and even broken relationships with ourselves. Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Romans, he talks about this war that's within ourselves, that I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I actually do. And so we live with this reality of brokenness all around us. We're also individuals. Uh, we're not individuals, but we, we think we're individuals that just can do whatever we want without our lives affecting one another, which is a very American thing to think. Oh, I am just, I'm my own island. I make my own decisions, and nothing I do will have any semblance of effect on anybody else, which we all know is a lie. Um, 
And we also, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you are experiencing conflict as the values of the kingdom of God come into conflict with the values of the kingdom of the world. There's incongruence there. to be in relationship with one another, we're called to live life together, which will inevitably bring conflict because God called a people, he blesses a people, and he sends a people. He doesn't send individuals. And inevitably, we have to deal with this sort of conflict that is inevitable. And a lot of times, the conflict that we experience has more to do with us and what we believe than it does with the people around us. It has to do with our own shame. What if I'm found out? What if, I, what if someone sees straight through me? It comes from this sense of panic. I'm all alone. This self-sufficiency, this self-preservation. If I don't protect myself, no one else will protect me. It's like this porcupine instinct. The, the girls and I went to see the movie Free Guy last night. Has anybody seen Free Guy? <laughs> And I'm not gonna give you, I'm not gonna spoil it, but there's this one guy who just lives with his hands up like this, like always ready to surrender. And at some point they say, you can put your arms down, like the world is safe. And he just can't, he cannot put his arms down. And we live with this constant sense of panic and fear. I'm unsafe, I can't let my guard down, what happens? We also live with this sense of scarcity. There's not enough in the world. I gotta be scrappy. I gotta get what's mine. I gotta do what, it, what, needs, what I need to do in order to make me safe and secure, to have everything that I need. And this leads us into these mindsets of thinking that everyone is a threat. Everyone's out to get me. It makes us tell lies for self-preservation's sake. It isolates us because we, we end up not being able to trust people or the world around us. It, it leads to hoarding. I gotta get what I can get so that I don't have to trust anybody, I don't have to rely on anybody else, and it's all about me. And ultimately, it tricks you into believing that God is against you. We kind of get into this mindset where we think if everyone is against me, it must mean that God is against me. And we live out of this sort of victim mindset. But ultimately, our conflict and our conflict avoidance exposes more of a misaligned desire and a misunderstanding about God than it does about the world around us. Our tendency to avoid conflict, it isolates us, it paralyzes us, and it keeps us from the growth and maturity, and it ultimately it keeps us from understanding who God is and how he desires for us to live in relationship with him and with each other. Abram's life is one long story of conflict, conflict avoidance, figuring out the way of God, going against the way of God, and maybe, and then going towards the way of God. And that's what we have in this story. I didn't read the first, um, the story that comes right before this, but these are basically two stories that show Abram's conflict avoidance and why he's avoiding conflict and the fallout from avoiding conflict, what it says about his belief in God. 
And then in chapter 13, what I read is the story, the redemption story, so to speak, of what it looks like when Abram has now decided that he's going to trust what God has promised and what, how God shows up for him. So Abram is in, in the story before he's in Egypt. He, God has put this call on his life. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. But his present circumstances from chapter 12 would have made these promises seem inconceivable. He's old. He and his wife are childless. And they're nomads. And God's like, hey, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have so many descendants, people of God, you're not even going to be able to count them, and you're going to be in a land. So his current circumstances would seem inconceivable to the promises of God. But God has given him this promise, and he, he follows God, he believes the promises of God, and he decides, okay, I'm going I'm to go. I'm going to follow God into this relationship. And he ends up in Egypt because there's a famine, he escapes to Egypt, and he has a beautiful wife. And long story short, Pharaoh's like, oh, man, I love, your wife is really pretty. I'd like her to be my wife. And, and Abram's like, well, um, that's going to come into conflict for sure. So let's just avoid it by calling my wife my sister so that I don't get killed and we're all safe. So his conflict avoidance basically leads him to throwing his wife under the bus. <laughs> he lives with fear and panic and scarcity. There's not going to be enough. I'm going to die. And he, it ends up affecting the people around him, and it ends up poorly. So that leads us into chapter 13. We're basically now, let's try this again. That's kind of this, the idea of chapter 13. Like, all right, we did this once. Let's go back to the place that we were. Let's press rewind on this. Let's start out where we were before, and then let's try this Go braving conflict and trusting God. Let's try this again. So he goes back to where the stories begin. Lot, who we're talking about here, is his nephew. And so they basically have all of this, all of this land. They have all this cattle. And the herdsmen come and they say, hey, there's not enough for all of us. Abram's done this before, right? Conflict. There's not enough for all of us. What are we going to do? And in those days... There was a significant hierarchy. So Abram was higher than Lot. He was more important than Lot. He always got the first choice because Lot is his nephew. And you can imagine that if you saw all of this land, you'd say, oh, well, I get the first choice. This is great. It's all about me. But that's not what Abram does. He decides wait, I've done this before. Let me reflect on how badly this went before when I decided to avoid conflict. Let's, let's try something different. Let's actually trust the promises of God and see how God shows up. So he's trusting. He says, you know what, Lot? You go first. You pick the best. He's patient. He says, you know what? I, I'm going to believe the promises that God gave to me. And I'm going to choose to let Lot choose first. And I'm just going to wait because God promised he's going to show up and I, and I have decided that I'm going to choose to trust his promises. And ultimately, that leads to generosity. He leaves with this sense of there's enough. And it, if it seems like at the end there isn't enough, that God's going to provide for me. 
I'm going to trust that. I'm going to brave this conflict that didn't go poorly the first time, and now I have a second chance, and I'm going to decide to choose that God is good and that he is enough. And in verse 14, God comes back and he reminds Abram that in the midst of him letting Lot choose first and letting kind of the chips fall as they may, so to speak, that God is still faithful to his promises. He reminds Abram again, I will see to give you the lamb in your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. He reminds him of the, of the promises that he made in chapter 12. So if conflict is inevitable, what do we learn about God from the life of Abram that helps us to brave conflict and navigate it, not just brave it, to go towards it, but to navigate it in such a way that glorifies God and invites others to know him as well? First, we, we learn in Abram's story that God is faithful and trustworthy, that he keeps his promises. God, when God returns to Abram at the end of the story, he's constantly reminding him of the promise that he gave to him. And you see this all throughout the life of Abram, that God never leaves him alone. He's constantly going back to that chapter 12 blessing. Remember, Abram, I'm for you. Remember, I'm blessing you. Remember that I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you an offspring. And we have the privilege of knowing the end of the story. And so ultimately, what we see through scripture is that God, throughout the whole story, has been promising to send a Messiah to redeem the world and redeem the world, and he did. And so when we read these stories of Abraham, we read them knowing the end of the story. We read them with the Messiah in mind. We read them with Jesus in mind. And if he kept that promise to send his son and to redeem the world, he can be trusted in even the most dire of circumstances. So I no longer need to live out of a sense of panic or fear or survival of the fittest. I no longer need to ask the question, can I trust God? Is he going to be good? If I decide to trust in his promises and walk in his ways, is he going to be good? The answer is always yes. The second is that God provides. God provided Abram everything he needed. In the chapter before that we didn't read, even in the midst of Abram's disobedience and his conflict avoidance, God still provided for him. He did not banish him to nowhere. He redeemed him. Even in the midst of his disobedience, God said, all right, uh, come on, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> come back, I'm going to provide for you. Let's start over. Let's do this again. God always provides. It may not be in the ways of the world. He didn't choose the, the choicest place. But we see later on in the story of Abram that they are protected and provided for because of the portion of land that they're on. When we read forward in the story, we see the significance of God's provision in this part of the land that they had. So it may not be in the way that you think or the way that you anticipate but God provides and he has given us everything that we need. And this produces in us a, a sense of generosity in the same way that it produced generosity in the life of Abraham. I don't need to hoard things, physical things, opportunities. I don't need to be scrappy. I don't need to climb the corporate ladder. I don't, 
I don't need to throw people under the bus. Because God is good and God provides. I need to trust him and be patient and wait and see his way through it. And third, we see that God is sovereign. This is more than just a phrase about God is in control. But this is a reminder that God is the God of the universe. <laughs> that it's not up to you. That you are not forgotten and it's actually not about you at all. Isn't it actually kind of freeing to be reminded that it's not about us? It's about God. It's about the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. And so as we live out God's ways and God's purposes, we know that he is the one leading and guiding because it is for his glory and it is for his honor, not for ours. And to say that God is sovereign is to submit your whole life to him, to recognize that he's the creator and the ruler and the sustainer of the universe. So we can brave conflict knowing that it's God that holds it all together. We are merely submitters to him. This does not mean that we're passive puppets. We brave conflict. We actually brave it. We go towards it because we have submitted ourselves to the one who knows all things and who has created all things. We are not victims that live with a victim mentality, but we are participators in God's plan. Braving conflict is part of how we participate in this redemption, in this reconciliation that God is all about. Braving conflict is how we learn to trust that God is good, and it's part of how we display God's goodness to a watching world around us. So how do we do this? Sounds easy enough to say, well, it's great, just brave your conflict. Trust that God's in control. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> I wish that in the midst of conflict, we could just like snap our fingers and be like, well, I'm fine, because you know, God's in control. But it takes work. It takes work to submit ourselves to the Lord. So what do we do? What does it look like in our day, and day, day in and day out lives? How do we live in such a way that these truths about God are just in our bones, and we live out of them day to day? We read... First of all, we read these stories in scripture. We tell ourselves, we remind ourselves of God's goodness through his word, and we tell each other stories of God's goodness. This is why we live in community with one another. Because I need you to tell me the stories of how God has been sovereign in your life, and you need to hear my stories of how God has been sovereign in my life. You need I need to hear the stories from each of you of how God has provided, how he's been good and faithful and trustworthy, even in suffering and pain and heartache. How has God been good? We tell each other these stories. Second, we confess that it, we don't always believe it's true. This is the most vulnerable and transparent and real thing that we can do in our relationship with we go to him as our father in those moments and we say, I don't actually know if I trust you're going to be good here. I don't know, God, if, if, I, if I throw that person under the bus in my job so that I can get the promotion, are you, if I don't actually do that, are you going to provide for me? 
Are you going to financially provide for me? What does my career mean to me? Are you, how are you actually going to be good? We confess that we don't believe it. And we keep returning to him. We practice. We brave the conflict. We submit to God's sovereignty. And we trust his promises. And we trust that he will provide a way. And we wait. Just like in Abram's life, this did not happen overnight. Abram actually never saw the complete fulfillment of the promises of God. And yet, he was faithful, and he trusted God. And God showed up, and he sent his Redeemer. He sent the Messiah. We are people that have the opportunity to live out this gospel in the midst of conflict, this good news that God has been working from the beginning of time, and he continues to work. He, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.